Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is Authentic Biochemistry Studios. And today is the ninth day. It's a Sunday on a, um, a nice, pleasant afternoon, actually. And kind of cold out here, but I'm in the Pacific Northwest and it is winter. So that's perfectly understandable. Um, but what's more important and what may also be somewhat understandable is the topic today. Uh, it's part two of our discussion of avirulence. Now, virulence is basically a dynamic modality of a potential pathogen that can inflict illness on the host. And so the increase in virulence would be an increase in the presentation of the illness as a form of a disease caused by the etiologic agent, which is indeed that specific pathogen. So avirulence, with putting the A in front, the formal A in front of that word, would mean anything about that pathogen that could still include reproductive capacity, infectivity, and transmission, but that otherwise does not induce an illness in the host, or one that is easily observed by normal presentation of feeling sick. It doesn't mean that there aren't major modifications in the immune system that are going through the process of eliminating the potential pathogen. That well could be the case, but it falls below the level of symptomology, such as a hyperinflammatory response which would make the patient uh, or the infected person uh, feel ill. And so that presentation, of course, some of the presentations, some of the signs and symptoms, right? We talk about the difference between signs and symptoms. They can be manifest, but they may be at such a low level that they, they do not induce what a person would say as an illness. And so... We talked about the two-gene hypothesis or gene-for-gene gene hypothesis by Floor, who was a plant pathologist, who said that if there's an avirulence gene, which then will produce a product in a potential pathogen, that binds to a resistance factor somewhere in the host, and he was talking about a host plant when he was first describing this in the 1940s, then you would have a non-disease causing interaction because the host would be mounting a sufficient amount of defense that the pathogen would not be able to actually induce a disease and therefore cause severe damage to the organism that it was um, just recently involved with. So you understand that virulence and virulence factors are going to include a whole, whole spectrum of biochemical and physiological correlates that will link to changes in the host modification and gene expression and in switching from carbon source for bioenergetics and, of course, the signal transduction that will occur upon modification of receptor-mediated binding of the pathogen that induces either its inception into the cell or uptake into its cell, sometimes with an endosome, for example, 
or the alteration of the membrane in such a way that changes the polarity of the membrane, therefore the firing of voltage-gated channels, and therefore the transmissibility of a pathogenic agent such as a cellular mass or a virion or spore that can be introduced beyond the plasma membrane to the cytoplasm of the host. So those are just some of the characteristic mechanisms, which may have, again, biochemical and physiological correlates or cellular correlates that would be related to what we could call virulence factors from the pathogen. The pathogen would then be generating after gene expression proteins and proteins could be enzymes which could modify, say, membrane lipids or membrane lipid protein interactions in such a way that they would create an environment, that interaction would create an environment which would allow for the infection to proceed, sometimes cloaked so that the immune system is not um, aware of the infection process until it becomes subcellular. And if it's an intracellular uh, organism or pathogen, like say with a virus, then the chances are that the host won't recognize it even has an infection until replication of the pathogen uh, gets turned on in, in the, either the cytoplasm of the nucleus or sometimes in, in a specific organelle or an endosomal compartment, like in the phagolysosome, um, of, let's say, circulating cells or tissue cells, after which that cell could generate antigens on its surface that could trigger the subsequent immune response, first innate and then acquired, unless the pathogen has already been uh, traveling within that cell population or that host population, in which case you may have memory cells involved in warding off that infection and maybe decreasing the replication rate, therefore uh, ha uh, halting whatever could become a systemic disease. And if that if it becomes a systemic disease, then that means many cells can be transformed or infected with a pathogenic agent, reproduce, and then be able to send out the daughter progeny of that reproduction to either adjacent cells or completely outside the host. Right? So all of that involves this virulence association. And we're going to get into it pretty uh, intensely here because, um, well, first of all, it's authentic biochemistry. And that's what we do here. We try to get down to direct molecular interactions and describe them and explain them. Uh, but also I do this because there is so much that is not understood by people without a deep knowledge of the subject on how infections and how diseases really progress. And when you get to the level of epidemiology, which is the level of spreading the disease, like say in a human population, all the things that I'm talking about already are mechanisms which have taken place. So you need to be able to correlate the mechanisms of infection and reproduction and transmission and correlate those directly to epidemiological uh, 
metrics. And often that is not done. And so if it's not done, then the connection may not be appropriate. And you want to know what those connections are to be able to evaluate data and understand it as evidence for various future outcomes that you're hoping to uh, control. All right, so let's go back to our discussion here about streptococci. <clears throat> now, again, remember, these are bacteria, very common disease-causing bacteria, as well as commensal bacteria in human host. So streptococci have evolved many different mechanisms that respond to environmental alterations, such as temperature, pH, and of course, metabolism. And these environmental changes, either external or internal to the host, can allow the bacterial infection by maintaining bacterial survival. So infection has to occur with living cells or with viable virions, if you're talking about a virus. That means you can't initiate the infection process and then lose cells or lose virions to any sufficient degree, because if you do, then the infection process will halt. And then you'll get into an avirulent mode. So this can be when you hear, for example, um, people who, who are, have acquired an infection, but they have no symptomology. If there's no symptomology, there could well be an avirulent status. That is, that uh, invading pathogen will not become a disease-causing agent because sufficient virulence factors have not been deployed that overcome the immune system. See how this, see how this is, allows for a complete florid understanding of the infection process when you get it down to the individual components. And there's one component that streptococci use called the TCS. That's the two-component system. <laughs> and you find it in many bacteria. You also find archaea, fungi, plants carry it out, and many lower eukaryotes. But you don't see a two-component system which is associated with infection of host cells in most higher animals, particularly in mammals and humans. Humans, one type of a mammal, right? So bacteria, typical TCS, consists of two different proteins, a histidine kinase, or an HK, and some kind of regulator. And they call them cognate response regulators, and they drop off the C. They used to be they used to use the C, but now it's just RR, so response regulator. So the two components are HK and RR. A histidine kinase, an enzyme, okay, that's an enzyme activity, and then a response regulator. So what happens is that the histidine kinase can receive an external stimulus. Whatever that stimulus is, it could be change in temperature, could be change in pH, could be change in glucose concentration, right? Remember, this is an infective agent. When that external stimuli is greeted by the bacterial cell population with the two-component system that carries the histidine kinase, that histidine kinase may autophosphorylate. After autophosphorylation on a histidine residue, the phosphoryl group that was on that histidine 
is now loaded onto an aspartic acid on the response regulator. So you get histidine autophosphorylation followed by transphosphorylation on an aspartic acid residue on the other protein involved in the two-component system, the RR, or again, the response regulator. What happens after that is the response regulator is itself activated by this new phosphorylation. And this triggers a series of cellular responses that allow for the interaction of the regulatory regions of all the related target genes, which must now be induced to be expressed. Okay. So most bacteria don't just have one type of two-component system. They can have upwards of 10. In fact, 10 is the most common number you find, 10 different mechanisms. And each of them regulate a specific multiple cellular function, maybe metabolism, maybe a stress response, maybe biofilm formation, maybe antibiotic resistance, maybe competence, and also even directly sensu-strictu virulence, particularly if they're involved in a toxin production, right? So TCSs are considered, because of what I just explained to you, absolutely vital targets for the pharmaceutical industry because this is how you develop novel anti-pathogenic drugs. And this has been the playground for antibacterial um, homolog production for the last 20, 25 years at least. So there's a P2CS, that's prokaryotic TCS. And you see in, so that's what they call P2CS, put the P in front of it, because there are, of course, eukaryotic types. And so um, S. pneumoniae has about 13. S. mutans, that's the really important karyogenic agent causing dental caries. Um, the S. mutans UA159, it has upwards of 14 two-component systems. Other streps contain as many far outreaching as 15 to 17 to 18 different two-component systems. So quite a lot of different mechanisms are involved. So there's a lot of genetics that has been invested in these two-component systems. So you can see how vital they are for pathogenicity, right? And maybe for other vital aspects of the free living, if it's a free living organism, if it's not a, a endosymbiont or if it's not a virion or something like that. So the best characterized TCS is present in many streptococcal species is one called CIARH. That's composed of an HK, histine kinase enzyme, they call it CIAH, and then the response regulator called the CIAR. So we've just given you now more specific names because this is in the streptococcal uh, cell lineage. So you have the CIAR, protein, amino acid identity of CAIR proteins in other systems similar to this. And that similarity or actually full identity of amino acids can range from anywhere from 85 to 99%. So a great deal of conservation of amino acid sequence homology. That's a tremendous selection pressure that's been put on this TCS. So those are absolute uh, amino acid identities, whereas you can have similarities 
somewhere between about 91 to 100% even. So the CIAR proteins are highly conserved in the streptococci. That's the take-home messenger. So beyond that, almost all the aspartic acid residues, remember those are the ones that get transphosphorylated from the autophosphorylated histidine after the histidine kinase activation. And the aspartate is going to be on the response regulator, remember. So that aspartic acid uh, residue often is aspartate 51. Uh, that's where it is in the sequence. We'll receive the phosphoryl group from that histidine and, and that enzyme, that CIAH, that, in, that carries out that catalytic event of transphosphorylation. Those particular uh, amino acids in specific locations in the sequence and the protein homology are basically invariant in the streptococcal lineage of proteins in those protein families. So collectively, the data indicates that the CIARH system, especially the CIA response regulator protein, is highly conserved in all the streptococci. So then let's ask what the function of all of this is, right? What's the function of the CIARH? Well, I'll tell you. Competence is a, first I'll define it, is a transient physiological state that permits cells to uptake and integrate exogenous DNA directly into the bacterial genome. That's what competency is in bacterial genetics, molecular genetics. So that will play a key role in virulence, biofilm formation, and also, of course, I say, of course, because I've studied this, antibiotic resistance, or AR. So when you have competence, when you're able to take up exogenous DNA and incorporate it via some form of recombination mechanism directly into the genome of the host bacterium that will ultimately be the streptococcus, that whole ability to have competence like that for DNA uptake is itself a significant factor in virulence for streptococci, but not only for virulence, but for biofilm formation and also for resistance to antibiotics. So natural competence, uh, which you observe in bacteria, was originally discovered in strep pneumoniae, and it was later demonstrated in many other bacteria, such as in S. mutans, but also in S. suis. These are very potent pathogens in the oral cavity, the latter two. So in streptococci, you have natural competence for genetic transformation, and that is stimulated by a protein called the competence-stimulating peptide, or CSP. And you also have the SIG-X-inducing peptide, or XIP, and that is initiated by what's known as the COM locus, where the product of the COM-C gene is exported by the COM-AB transporter. Subsequent to that, extracellular CSP remember that's the compost-stimulating peptide, is sensed by the COMDE TCS pathway. So in S. pneumoniae, the CIARH negatively regulates competence development. Okay? So 
the CIA HC306 mutant represents a CIARH in a constitutively active state, not inducible by that calm I just told you about, right? By the competent stimulating peptide, CSP. Always, it's always on, right? So when you have a mutation in the CIA HC306 mutant, which is what you picked up, that's the CIA protein now, you get a CIRH, which is constitutively active, and that leads to a competence deficiency in Astemoniae. Moreover, the addition of an exogenous uh, CIRH cannot stimulate the competence of the mutant. So that means there's some receptor-mediated response, right? So CIARH negatively regulates the COM CDE transcription upstream from its ability to stimulate competence, right? It's upstream because it's before it's transcribed. So that's where CIRH is involved in it, the transcriptional regulation of the CSP locus. You see how that works? So that mutant will not allow the CIRH to negatively regulate the COM-CDE transcription, and that then modulates the competence, and the competence in the, in the bacterium is, of course, stimulated. We haven't mentioned it before by molecular oxygen. Okay. So, of course, inactivation, you have to go on the other side now to answer this, ask this question. What happens when you inactivate? When you inactivate the CIAR as a response regulator, that leads to competence induction. So a mutant form of it, competence is always on, right? But if you inactivate the uh, uh, CIAR, you also get competence induction, you see? So the mutation or the inactivation come to the same result right? You get competence induction. So the CIAR is a repressor of competence induction. That's what I'm saying here. So now let's take a look about what this whole biofilm connection is, right? So you know that biofilms are structured communities. They have a three-dimensional and temporal structural form within system. They form a community in the host. Or say, if you're thinking about the oral cavity, the biofilm that are on the teeth are a structured heterogeneous bacterial community. And it's composed of at least more than one and usually multiple bacterial species. And the word species of bacteria, you know, is kind of a misnomer because of possibility for conjugation and competence, and competence, right? You recall from your bacterial genetics. Anyway, um, biofilms will elicit many human infectious diseases, including the one that I'm going to lead to here eventually, dental caries, Okay. So 25 species have been reported of oral streptococci that are known to inhabit human oral cavity. 
and they account for somewhere around um, 25, maybe 20, maybe down to 20 percent, as high as 25 to 30 percent of the total oral bacteria. Quite a number of oral streptococci. So dental caries itself is a classical biofilm-associated disease. And it's induced by diet, and in particular, one sugar, the disaccharide sucrose. The disaccharide sucrose is far more a causal agent in dental caries than our fructose or glucose alone. Because fructose and glucose together, as in the disaccharide sucrose, alter the regulation of glucose fermentation. And because of that loss of regulation, you get a rapid turnover of carbohydrate to produce the sufficient amount of energy necessary to override the normal early immune responses because of the highly energetic replication of the invading pathogen. Okay. Now, will this be then linked to virulence factor? Of course, it's linked to that in the oral cavity. So among all the oral streptococci, again, I said, you know, we have like 25 species, at least in the, in the human oral cavity. It's S. mutans, strep mutans, that's probably the most important karyogenic bacteria. Therefore, it contributes to the formation, most prominently, of human dental caries. But also you have S. sanguinis and S. gordonii. And those often are involved in karyogenesis, but before full-blown oral disease and tooth decay, those latter two streptococci initiate the oral biofilm. Now, let's go deeper. In contrast to the CIA-RH operon in streptococcus pneumoniae, the CIA-RH operon S mutans, this is the oral karyogenic agent, contains three genes, the CIAR, the CIAH, remember what those were, and one more, a CIAX. So that's actually a three-component signal transduction system. So it's not really a dual, it's a tri-component, right? So it's very important to understand the deeper you go into examining these uh, systems, the, not only do you find a plenum of variation in protein-protein interaction, protein-membrane interaction, um, alteration of the kinetics of signal transduction, which phosphorylation cascade or, or calcium movement uh, or sodium or, or potassium voltage-gated channel is altered, but also the fact that the mechanisms themselves can pick up adapter molecules, in this case, in a, a third player in this component system, right? So it's no longer a two-component, it's a three-component system, right? But it still falls under the classical because you have the histidine kinase and the response regulator, you see? But now you've got one more protein to worry about. All right, we're getting close to the end of the lecture, so let me move on here pretty quickly. 
So the CIA acts, you might be asking, what does it do? Well, I kind of just introduced it to you rather an occult way. It's involved in calcium. In fact, it's a calcium, uh, has a calcium binding domain. And so the CIA XRH operon expression, that is all three now of the components, is actually repressed by calcium through the CIAX protein. And the inactivation of CIAH, CIAR, and or CIAX all will result directly in an attenuated biofilm formation. So this is kind of like a feedback regulator as you, as you, as, as you see it unfolding, right? So CIARH system is cognitive signal play a key role in biofilm development in many oral streptococci. Biofilm formation itself and expression of that CIARH is in a thiol disulfide oxidoreductase or SDBA deficient mutant are all drastically increased. And what it looks like is this, this thiol disulfide oxidoreductase, that particular gene product, that protein, that enzyme, is also involved in biofilm formation. And indeed, it is controlled by the CIARH and by that COMDE complex system. And that you see in S. gordonii. So I'm going to stop there because I'm out of time. Um, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, the 9th of January, 2022, saying thank you for paying attention. We'll come up with a new lecture soon and bye for now.